welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. The streets of Minneapolis are a lot quieter now. The National Guard is gone. There are no more helicopters circling. The firecrackers have stopped. The fireworks have stopped. There's not smoke in the air anymore. But thankfully, I don't think that that means that it's over. There are still lots of protests almost every day at the state capitol. There are lots of meetings and conversations about different policing strategies happening all around the cities. Many, many of my conversations, both professionally, with my family, with friends over Zoom and over the phone, continue to be about the urgent need for reforms in policing and for systematic changes to the structures of our country and our world to try to ensure that the systematic perpetuation of racial bias and mistreatment does not continue. It's been so fascinating to watch this change occur because it's what I would call an outside-in change as opposed to an inside-out change. And when I talk about outside-in, it means that social pressure, external factors, cell phone videos are what is causing or reinforcing, demanding the need for systematic change within people's individual actions. Inside-out change is change in our behavior because of change in our thoughts or in our feelings. And I think we'd all like to say that we are anti-racist because that's what lives in our hearts, because we truly are open and loving and respectful to our fellow humans. But the reality is that we all carry within us significant bias. And perhaps despite our aspirations, most of us as individuals will not enact significant change from the inside out unless there's some really jarring kind of cataclysmic event that forces us to rethink the way that we think and feel and then change our external behavior. I guess another way to say it is we're a little bit lazy about changing our minds and hearts and acting accordingly. It's always going to be easier to maintain the status quo within ourselves as well as within the society around us. Outside in change is sort of the uh, lowest common denominator of change. It's social pressure, it's consequences, it's social media at its finest saying, you will get on this bandwagon or you will face consequences. It's inertia, it's pressure, it's expectation. There's some tribalism in it. And at its worst, it's a hype or it's a trend or it's something that has a big blip on the social consciousness for a while but then fades. But at its best, it's all of us deciding together to go this direction. It's all of us deciding together to submit to the will and the needs of the community to take action to say, we're done with this. You must be anti-racist. You must do the work within your heart, within your business, within your life to ensure that you are not contributing to this problem. I think we've failed at inside out change. We've failed to let kindness lead in our individual hearts and minds 
So now we're stuck with the outside in. And hey, I'm a fan. I think however change happens, it happens. And shame and pressure are a powerful motivator. And I think individuals and leaders and businesses who don't figure out how to get on the bandwagon are going to be on the wrong side of history, period. And it's no longer really an option to say this is not my problem or this is not something I'm involved with. And I realize that this may be one of my more heavy-handed podcasts in terms of both a political leaning and an explicit perspective that, um, you know, it's time to get on the bandwagon. And if you don't like it and it's not the message you want to hear, I, I totally get that. There'll be other episodes in the coming weeks that might be more up your alley, more focused on traditional conversations around entrepreneurship and mental health and well-being. I think the mental health conversation around so much of what's been happening in the wake of George Floyd's death is the overwhelming nature of the movement. And I think in individual lives, we're not always sure what to do or how to act or what to change. Even for those of us who desperately want to be participants, want to be allies, want to be involved, it can feel really amorphous to know how to do that. And that is a pretty significant stressor that overwhelms the system, especially for our uh, entrepreneurial minds that are really keyed towards taking specific action. And this is where the enormity of the movement at the national and international levels is kind of not helpful, that the real work happens in your neighborhood. It happens in your community by attending a protest, by participating in a conversation about policing, maybe with your city council or going to a guest speaker at the university, talking to neighbors, maybe joining a book club that's focusing on a book about the history of racial injustice in the U.S., the most meaningful actions are very specific and they are very grounded in the places in which you already have influence, in which you are already connected, in which you're already having conversations in your neighborhood, in your family, in your company. And yes, there are lots of ways to participate at the national level, both in terms of showing up to protests, showing up to things, giving money, but most of this real work happens in the smaller spheres of life. My family and I went to visit George Floyd's memorial, I guess about 10 days after he died, maybe a week or so. And uh, it's about three miles from our house. And my children, who are 13, 9, and 9, really were able to take it in. We'd been watching a number of different films related to the topic of racial injustice. And we'd participated in a a children's march near the Capitol building in St. Paul, that that same morning. The march was amazing. It was really beautiful. There were about 500 people there, lots and lots of families, lots of young children carrying signs. It was targeted to kids aged like three to 12. Very peaceful, but also powerful. There was chanting. There were the call and response yells of, say his name, George Floyd, say his name, George Floyd. And to hear a chorus of children's voices uniting in their own chance of I can't breathe was really quite breathtaking. So after the march, we went to the memorial and we were not there long. We were there for a few minutes, but we kind of stood. We saw all the flowers and the murals and the notes and the letters and things that people have sent from all over the world. And once again, I was struck by the specificity of the story that this man, this gentle giant, as he was called, this Man was killed in this particular way for all the world to see. And as horrendous as the story is, as horrendous as it is for him and for his family, this one man 
is changing the world because we can't help but not see it. We can't help but not react or we can't help but not feel something in response to the videos of his death or the the narrative of how he died. Standing there in front of the, the Cup Foods grocery store amidst the remnants of some burnt out buildings, piles of flowers, other people who come to mourn or I guess like us pay respects, other people who are just wanting to see and to participate in what's happening around us. It felt like sacred ground. It felt like walking among the crosses at Normandy or walking through the fields of the concentration camp in Dachau. That feeling that something happened here, that the street will remember, that the place will remember, that the bricks and the buildings will remember. The question, of course, is whether we will all remember in two weeks, in three weeks, in five months, in two years. I wanted to end, or I guess rather spend the second half of today's podcast reading a short excerpt from a book that I'm working on that I am hoping will be out and available in uh, the fall. It's a book about grief and perhaps a little bit of a departure from my focus on entrepreneurs, although I will say that If you've been listening to the podcast, you've heard me talk about this before, that entrepreneurship is a life path that does involve a lot of grief, in addition to just the grief that goes along with being a human. So here's um, a short excerpt from my book in which I'm reflecting on this topic of the specific loss of George Floyd and what that means for the world. And I hope you find it interesting. When I was a graduate student, I went on a summer trip to Guatemala to learn about how 36 years of civil war shapes individuals and communities. The trip was so impactful to me that I returned to Guatemala every two years for the next decade, sometimes taking with me groups of my own psychology students. And on every trip, I visited the Guatemalan Forensic Anthropology Foundation. Um, In Spanish, it's abbreviated as the FAFG The team at the FAFG recovers human remains, mostly from mass graves, and they undertake the arduous task of reconstructing bone fragments, bits of clothing, teeth, whatever is recovered from the dirt, to try to identify the victim and decipher how and when they died. They can identify the sex, the approximate age of the person, whether they were shot, the victim of a blunt trauma injury, or perhaps struck down by a machete and this is a nonprofit organization. The highly trained staff work for low pay. And depending on the political climate on, at the time, under the constant threat of death threats, of assassination, there have been several bomb threats and people associated with the FAFG who've had very, very scary, threatening things happen to them. There are lots of very powerful people who don't want the stories of the dead to be told. When you visit the FAFG, you walk through several levels of security and then into a small waiting room. Visitors are led down a series of maze-like hallways that are kind of cluttered. They're stacked with boxes. And then you enter this large light-filled room full of long tables and computer workstations. Looks like a laboratory. The tables are full of human bones. They're piled on the table and then carefully reconstructed like a jigsaw puzzle by gowned and gloved anthropologists. There are several reconstructions happening at one time. So when you look around the room, you see various stages in process. The staff busy at their work, they look like surgeons. They're gloved, they have gowns on. 
but their skills are not for saving lives. Their patients have already crossed over. This is where I learned about the importance of telling the stories of the dead. Many in Guatemala want these cases to remain hidden. They don't want it to be known just how many people were killed, how many children were buried in remote fields at the hands of government soldiers. For many years, the strife in Guatemala was just called an internal conflict, and it was later upgraded to a civil war. It wasn't until the peace accords were signed and a couple of years passed that the United Nations investigators declared it to be a genocide. For 36 years, a government systematically sought to annihilate Mayan people, and the world didn't really know, didn't really see. It's the stories of the dead that have helped to reveal the truth. The staff at the FAFG believe that there is no possibility for healing until the ghosts have had their say. As often as possible, their work involves matching the found remains with lists of missing people. When there is a match based on location, age, sex, and eyewitness reports, the FAFG returns the bodies to the surviving family members. Healing requires truth-telling. There's a longing to know what happened and to try to understand the experience of the loved one who was lost. And I now live in Minneapolis, a few miles away from where George Floyd was killed. As the world rose up in angry response to racism and brutality, Say His Name was chanted in protest in the streets of my neighborhood. The people uplifted their voices, yelling in call and response style, Say His Name. George Floyd, say his name. George Floyd. One man, one death, sparked a global uprising against systematic injustice. His death is a story we now tell when we're trying to explain the urgency of the need for upending and healing a broken nation. Of course, he is not the only one who has died this way, and that is the point. But his death is the story on our lips. The dead must be named and their stories must be told. That is the only possibility for healing. The first time that I visited the FAFG, I found it shocking to be in such close proximity to human remains. I was allowed to get up close and look carefully at the bones. I examined the pelvis of a woman who was about 30 years old, and it took my breath away a little bit to be that close to a body. It was sacred and beautiful and scary. After a few minutes in the laboratory, visitors walk through more cluttered hallways to a small internal patio where they can sit, drink some water, be with a guide to ask questions. On my first visit, I asked how many cases were in their backlog. How many bodies did they have left to reconstruct? And the guide almost laughed at me. She said that every hallway in the building is lined floor to ceiling with boxes. And in each of those boxes contains the fragment of a human body. I've been walking amidst the boxes all day. She said that they also have entire rooms in the building, stacked floor to ceiling with remains. Thousands of bodies. All those bodies. All those stories. All those ghosts longing to be named. That's the end of the excerpt. And I read this because most of us as entrepreneurs, as parents, as people are so, we're, we're immersed in our lives as we should be. We are so much about the business of doing life that I think we run the risk of forgetting the wisdom and the narratives of the dead. We don't have to think about George Floyd. He's no longer here. We don't have to think about these boxes and boxes of bodies in some faraway place because it's not part of our life. It doesn't bump into us. But as a psychologist, as a 
spiritual adventurer, spiritual journeyer, I think that these stories are much more with us than we realize. And whether it's our own leaning into the possibility of repeating history, or whether it's in our collective unconscious, whether it's in the intergenerational transmission of trauma that lives in ourselves, there are all kinds of ways in which the narratives of the past shape the moments of our daily life. And if we're not awake to that, if we don't give it the time and space to come to the surface within us so that we can work with it, so that we can talk about it, think about it, write about it, do what's available to us to help heal it, then we will be victim to it in ways that we don't know and don't expect. So I guess the parting thought is to learn the stories. Learn the stories of your neighborhood, of your community, of your family, of your family history. Know what places you're walking on. Know what the bricks know. Know what history is in your cells so that you can have your eyes open to the inside out part of change for you so that you know the inner landscape of your own history as it relates to racial injustice, as it relates to brutality, as it relates to who your tribe hated centuries ago, and as it relates to whatever pain and trauma and suffering might be living in your own history. It is work that's worth doing. I know it may not seem like it because there's so many other things to do. I don't really believe in ghosts, but I do believe in the science of the intergenerational transmission of trauma, and I do think that we can be haunted if we're not careful. So thanks for hanging in there with me for kind of a heavy topic today. As always, if uh, what I've said on the podcast makes no sense to you, please feel free to reach out. Um, you can find me at sherry at zenfounder.com. Be well. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.